0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading... Denver's Vision Zero Pledge is Failing. The City's Reset Calls for Slower Speeds to Stop Deaths, by Nathaniel Miner, and You Can Now Reserve a Security Line Spot at DIA Without TSA precheck or Paying for Clear, by Rebecca Tauber. From Westward, I'll be reading, La Rosa Park Poised to Become Denver's Third Historic Cultural District, by Benito L. Kelty, and Denver nonprofit uses chess to keep kids out of trouble by Benjamin Newfeld. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Denver's Vision Zero Pledge is failing. The city's reset calls for slower speeds to stop deaths by Nathaniel Minor. It's no secret that Denver's six-year-old pledge to eliminate traffic deaths and serious injuries by 2030 has not gone to plan. Both deaths and serious injuries have risen significantly since the campaign was launched in 2017. 84 people died on Denver's streets last year, city data show, and there were 386 crashes that resulted in serious injuries. Now, though, outgoing mayor Michael Hancock is recommitting to its Vision Zero program that reframes serious and fatal crashes as systemic problems that need infrastructure or engineering fixes. His administration on Wednesday released an updated plan that he hopes will get the city back on track. We cannot rest, Hancock wrote in a letter introducing the new plan. A single life lost on our streets is unacceptable and preventable. We need to make Denver's streets safe for everyone no matter where they live in the city, no matter their means, and no matter their choice to walk, bike, drive, or take public transit. The plan touts the city's accomplishments since the initial plan was released, including new bike lanes, traffic signal adjustments that give pedestrians more time to cross streets, lower speed limits, including on busy roads like Santa Fe Drive and short sections of other arterial streets, and quick and dirty paint and post traffic calming measures. The document also recaps known challenges that Denver and many other US cities are facing, like consumers' increasing preference for dangerous to pedestrian SUVs and the rise in speeding during the pandemic. And it sets a course for the next six years of Vision Zero work that, if the next mayor chooses to follow it, could result in a transformation of the city's most dangerous streets here are three ways the new plan would try to accomplish that one a tighter focus on particularly dangerous areas denver's original vision zero action plan from 2017 designated 27 dangerous streets as the high injury network where it would focus its attention many are multi-lane arterial streets that carry thousands of cars a day often at high speeds now the city has designated four areas that it says need Immediate remedial safety work. Downtown Denver, South Federal Boulevard, East Colfax Avenue, and South Broadway Lincoln Street. It will develop action plans for each area that will be carried out by 2025 if it has enough funding. Possible treatments could include dropping speed limits and banning right turns on red. 2. Lower speed limits across the board and more enforcement, too. The Denver City Council lowered speed limits on neighborhood streets in late 2021, but lowering them on busier, faster streets where most deaths and injuries occur is a more difficult task because many are owned and controlled by the Colorado Department of Transportation, not the city. Still, the new plan says it must be done. It calls for the reduction of speed limits on all major streets to 25 miles per hour by 2028, pending necessary funds. It also says redesigning streets to force drivers to go slower is one of the most impactful Vision Zero actions that can be taken. We want to better design for slower speeds so that when people do make mistakes, because to be honest we all make mistakes, that those mistakes don't lead to debilitating entries or lives lost," said Rolf Isinger, Denver's Vision Zero program manager. A CDOT spokesperson did not immediately return a request for comment. Denver also wants more speed and red light cameras throughout the city. The legislature passed a bill last session that would make it far easier for cities, including Denver, to expand the use of such cameras. Governor Jared Polis, however, has yet to sign it. Three more infrastructure for bicyclists, pedestrians and transit users. People who walk, bike or roll are disproportionately killed and seriously injured in Denver data show. Building more infrastructure for those users is the best way the city can protect them, and car drivers too, the plan says. Specifically, the plan calls for 235 miles of new high-comfort bike infrastructure, 134 miles of bike lane upgrades, 120 upgraded pedestrian crossings, dozens of new bus stops, and a slate of other improvements by 2029. New bus rapid transit lines could make arterial streets safer, too, the plan says. Transit is the safest way to travel in Denver, city data shows, and the new bus lines may get their own travel lanes, as is planned on East Colfax Avenue. Eisinger said the federal government has called such road diets a proven safety strategy though CDOT's executive director has said bus-only lanes might not be necessary for planned bus rapid transit lines on Federal and Colorado Boulevards. The city also wants to upgrade its many new low-cost plastic bollards used to calm traffic and delineate bike lanes, which have been criticized for their appearance, to more durable concrete infrastructure. Eisinger, Denver's Vision Zero program manager, says he's feeling optimistic. We're trying to look at every opportunity we can in order to make the streets as safe as possible for everyone, he said. The new plan is encouraging to Molly McKinley, policy director for the Denver Streets Partnership, which for years has prodded the city to follow through on its various street safety and active mobility initiatives. But a plan is only as good as the will to get it done, she wrote in an email. The transformational changes needed to meet the goal of Vision Zero requires significant funding and leadership willing to stay the course, even when things get tough. We hope that Denver's new mayor and city council work together to prioritize this work. We look forward to supporting them in that effort. The next mayor will be either Mike Johnston or Kelly Breaux. Johnston has endorsed many of the same ideas called for in the updated Vision Zero plan, like building new bike lanes and slowing traffic. Bro has said she wants a strategic reset of Denver's Vision Zero program. You can now reserve a security line spot at DIA without TSA PreCheck or paying for Clear by Rebecca Tauber. First there was TSA PreCheck. Then came Clear. And starting Thursday, June 1st, DEN Reserve will allow travelers to reserve a spot in the TSA line at Denver International Airport. But unlike PreCheck and Clear, which cost money and require advance enrollment, DEN Reserve is free and open to anyone with a plane ticket. With long lines and a busy summer travel season, DEN Reserve is meant to help general passengers who often get stuck with long waits while people with PreCheck and Clear move through separate security lines quickly. CLEAR is partnering with Denver on the program, which already exists at 18 airports across North America. But unlike the CLEAR lanes designated for paid service subscribers, DEN Reserve is open to everybody. The program provides a better screening experience for those without a trusted traveler program and create efficiency where we have the highest demand, DIA states on the portal website. Travelers can sign up at the airport or online up to three days in advance for spots in line at the TSA checkpoint at A-Bridge. Like PreCheck and Clear, DEN Reserve has its own line at TSA, where people with reservations can show up and go right through at the reserve time by showing a QR code delivered via email. To reserve a spot, Travelers have to provide their flight info and can choose between time slots ranging from 1 to 4 hours before departure between 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. One person can also reserve up to 10 spots if traveling as a group. There is also a 15-minute grace period that allows travelers to arrive a bit early or late without having to reschedule. Slots are limited and may fill up fast, so we recommend booking as early as 3 days before your flight. DIA wrote on its website. The following articles are from Westward. La Rasa Park poised to become Denver's third historic cultural district by Benito El Kelty. Few parts of Denver has seen change like the north side, and many people feel it's time for history to finally take notice. Now some members of Denver City Council want to protect the heart of the Sunnyside neighborhood, La Rosa Park by making it Denver's third historic cultural district, alongside five points in La Alma Lincoln Park. The historic cultural designation honors the history of a community and its contributions to the city, while the more common historic designation only acknowledges the architecture and history. Council members are pushing for the recognition through an ordinance that would officially give La Rosa Park which is located on the border of the Sunnyside and Highland neighborhoods along West 38th Avenue, the Historic Cultural Designation by way of a June 26th vote. The ordinance was introduced on May 22nd. It's a big deal, and for the younger people, hopefully they'll understand that in the past, there was a lot of struggle to have it become what it is right now, says resident Diane Medina, who has lived across from the park since the 1970s. People struggled for the park. People died here. People fought here. It's historical, and there has to be that message. Councilwoman Amanda Sandoval, who grew up near La Vassa Park and now serves the area, has been pushing for it to receive a cultural landmark designation for several years. Describing its iconic features, including the 45-foot kiosko and other significant art pieces, Sandoval said that they'll be preserved meaning that seven generations from now, they'll still be there. It's ensuring that these features of La Raza Park, as the park evolves in the future, are preserved. The application for the historic cultural designation for La Raza recommends regular cleaning and touch-ups for its murals and the park's La Raza Unida metal sculpture created in 2021 by Chicano artist Emmanuel Martinez. Murals should get protective coating against rain and graffiti, the application adds, while a kiosco pyramid structure would get regular roof inspections. La Rosa Park is easily recognized by the kiosco, which is modeled to look like Mayan and Aztec ste- stepped pyramids and has murals painted on eight panels on the inside of the roof. Denver artist David Ocelotl-Garcia painted the murals, titled El Viaje, The Journey in Spanish, in 2016 to depict the transformation of Mexicans from plants to indigenous people to revolutionaries and then finally to Chicanos looking forward to their future. It's a bigger story than that, Sandoval notes. It's not just about the preservation of those features, such as the kiosco, the murals, and the sculpture. It's also to highlight in mainstream media and to my colleagues on council and to the public the significance that the Chicano movement played in the makeup of Denver, she says. Sandoval began seeking the designation for the park after council approved an official name change from Columbus Park to La Raza Park in 2020. As part of that project, the city published a study titled Nuestros Historias, Mexican-American Chicano-Latino Histories in Denver, which concluded that public officials need to diversify the Denver landmark portfolio with more sites and districts for underrepresented groups. Columbus Park had been known colloquially as La Raza Park since the 1970s, Medina remembers, but Council had shot down an effort to rename it in 1988, one year after the word mestizo, meaning a mixture of cultures and ethnicities, was added to the name of Curtis Park. Sandoval found more support for the renaming after the Black Lives Matter movement and the death of George Floyd, she says. Home to a large Italian immigrant population in the early 1900s, the park was named Columbus Park in 1931 in honor of the famed but controversial Genoese explorer. However, the neighborhood's demographics changed after World War II as Italian families moved to the suburbs and Mexican-American and Latino families moved to the north side and west side neighborhoods, according to city records. By the late 1960s, The children of the first Mexican-Americans in the neighborhood had grown up, and La Raza had become an important location for the nascent Chicano movement, according to its historic landmark application. Chicanos found a sense of belonging in Denver during that decade by renaming various parks and neighborhoods to reflect their Mexican-American heritage. The term La Raza, which means the race or the people, gained prominence during the Chicano movement in the 1960s and 70s. The Mexican-American Youth Organization, a Chicano group from Texas, created the La Raza Unida Political Party in 1970, the Southwest Council of La Raza, a civil rights advocacy group, formed in Arizona in 1968. The Chicano residents of these areas didn't just rename the parks, though. Murals were painted, cleaning was done, and people's safety was prioritized as residents began seeing their efforts as community control and a social liberation of their surroundings. The role La Raza played as a liberated area under community control is a source of pride for the community today, as it was in the 1970s, the park's landmark application reads. Medina says the renaming was like a confirmation, a validation, and that the Historic Cultural Landmark designation would be the same. It's a validation, saying, Yeah, this is a special place, Medina tells Westward. If it's a historic cultural district, then there has to be that message that is attached to that. At one point after the 1960s, the park became the site of rallies and violent confrontations with police. The poor conditions of its former pool sparked splash-ins by young Chicano activists in the summer of 1969, when Latino kids would visit public pools in affluent white neighborhoods in southeast Denver to demand equal treatment of city amenities. One of the activists who had worked as a lifeguard for La Raza Park was Nita Gonzalez, the daughter of Crusade for Justice founder Rodolfo Corky Gonzalez. It was Gonzalez and the Crusade for Justice that organized the splash-ins just a few months after the group's involvement in the West High School blowouts in La Alma Lincoln Park. Gonzalez would also host rallies and give speeches in the park, which was used to host graduations for Escuela Tatiloco, the dual-language alternative school he founded. The Crusade for Justice also opened Servicios de la Raza, a few blocks from the park in 1972, to offer the Chicana community affordable bilingual social services. On June 28, 1981, Police tear-gassed and released attack dogs on hundreds of men, women, and children who had come to the park to kick off their summer, according to the landmark designation application. Police had told them to disperse, saying they didn't have permits and accusing them of being part of the Black Berets, a militant Chicano organization. Community members threw rocks and bottles at the police, the application says. Police responded by firing tear gas into the crowd and releasing police dogs. Medina says she remembers what went down that day and how the tear gas lingered in the neighborhood for hours afterward like a fog, which ultimately changed her worldview on police and local law enforcement. It was terrible. It was really bad, Sandoval remembers. That was unprovoked. Nobody did anything to have them come down like that and start swinging and throwing tear gas. Sandoval adds, those stories aren't told. This would be only the third historical cultural district in Denver's history, and that's not an accurate makeup of Denver. According to her, the city's very diverse culture and makeup have been ignored for years when it comes to Denver's 360 registered landmarks and dozens of historic districts. A few years after the violence in 1981, the city of Denver decided to close the La Rosa Park pool and filled it in without public notice. The pool was filled in in the middle of the night, Sandoval recalls. That didn't happen in Congress Park. That didn't happen in Washington Park. That happened in communities of color. On the record, city officials blamed the failing pump and age of the pool which had been built in 1940, but community members argued that they had been relying on hired community members and activists for decades to clean the pool and keep it safe from gangs, with no issue. The summer youth workers used to clean it, Medina says. They would go around and clean it every day. Every day they would pick up trash because it was used more. It was a hangout place. Sandoval said the park played a significant role in her upbringing as she attended Quinceañeras, Dia de los Muertos festivals, and summer solstice celebrations there. The area around La Raza Park has been seen as an example of Denver's changing demographics and lost sense of history. For Medina, the newer residents who've come to town need some way to understand the history of the park, and a cultural landmark designation would really help. Just because you moved up the block doesn't mean you're invested. You have to educate yourself, she says. The Mexican and Chicano people have moved out. The people who are here now don't know the history. Medina notes that while a historic cultural designation is the ultimate goal, the work doesn't stop there. If the park gets a nice plaque and everything, that's fine, but there's a story attached to that, Medina says, noting how learning about the park's history is key. I don't know about the kids nowadays if they understand, but it's up to us to keep talking about that. Denver Nonprofit Uses Chess to Keep Kids Out of Trouble by Benjamin Newfeld, We relate chess to life says G. Wright, programmed coordinator for Make a Chess Move, MACM, a growing East Denver-based nonprofit that provides both in-school and out-of-school programming and employment opportunities for kids and young adults. Our mission is to build a just society by developing tenacious learners, compassionate leaders, and ethically-driven critical thinkers to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline, Wright says. And we do that through the skill set of chess. Wright describes how MACM uses the legendary board game as a practical and engaging means of teaching young people to see the bigger picture, how their choices in one moment can lead to positive or negative outcomes in the next. Every conversation that we have in regard to life, we relate it to chess, she says. And every chess lesson that we have, we relate it to the moves you make in life, like the playing board, for example. When we teach about the board, we teach that you have to pay attention to the whole board, the left corner, the right corner, the front corner, this front corner, the center, Wright explains. You can't be too focused on what's going on over here because then you're going to miss something that's going on over there, and you may get checkmated. Mark Hill, the MACM chess facilitator, believes that a person's moves on a chess board can ultimately go hand in hand with life. There are consequences to all your actions, he says, and the chessboard is where you get to have those consequences without them affecting you personally. According to Wright, one of the popular sayings in MACM is make your next move your best move. Another is if you think better, you know better. If you know better, you do better. As a result, kids learn to make every decision count as they play. The philosophy with chess is really getting the youth to have a different and better understanding of thinking, Wright says. Philip Douglas, the founder of MACM, says the organization gives guidance and support to kids who often don't have the opportunity to learn such lessons at home or at school. Social media influences and certain people in their communities can send kids down the wrong path in life, he adds, and chess is a great way to get them out. They could want to be good, but there's so much negativity that they're fighting against, he notes. MACM was created by Douglas in 2012 after one of his mentees, Daquan Walker Smith, was killed in a drive-by shooting near Manuel High School. He registered the organization as a 501c3 in 2017, giving it the official status of a nonprofit. Born in the mid-80s, Douglas grew up on Denver's east side, right near the main MACM space on Race Street and East 26th Avenue, and graduated from Manuel if I didn't get engaged in pro-social activities that happened after school I probably would be dead by now he recalls I was so enticed by that gang life he adds that lifestyle the fast cars the women the money that was something we all we saw in the community we didn't see doctors and lawyers we saw drug dealers gangbangers, alcoholics Douglas was raised by his grandmother after losing his father to alcoholism when he was eight and his mother to a drug overdose when he was 15. She figured the best thing that she could do was put us into pro-social activities after school or any kind of programs that kept us engaged, he remembers. If not for that, I would have been like a real gang member, he says. Somebody probably would have killed me already. But at 14, Douglas got involved in Youth Biz, an organization that teaches financial literacy to kids through extracurricular camps and programs. After he turned 18, he continued working in nonprofits until he eventually started MACM. But while things have worked out for Douglas, life doesn't always go as smoothly for others. I'm a few years older than Phil, says Quincy Wedgworth, MACM's Director of New Developments. Both he and Douglas participated in youth biz programs that paid them to attend when they were in their teens. While the two started and ended up in the same places, They took drastically different paths to get there, however. Wedgworth said that Youth Biz gave me that structure that I needed. It gave me that paycheck that I needed, and it helped me with my schooling because they helped us with homework when we got there. But after he turned 18, all that went away. Once that was done for me, I had nothing else, Wedgworth says. This was my seventh year out of prison. Douglas also knows from personal experience the importance of making MACM a part of kids' lives even after they've completed high school. I'm the only one in my family that didn't decide to go that route. And when I say that route, I mean the gangbanging, the selling dope, Douglas says, My older brother went through youth biz. My older brother learned how to play chess before me. I learned how to play in the seventh grade. My only motivation to get better was so that I could beat him. That was it. He was a phenomenal chess player. Like Wedgworth though, his older brother ended up in prison after he lost the supportive structure of youth biz. Rather than limit itself to an after-school program, MACM builds long-term relationships with its participants and gives kids the opportunity to stay on as employees to help grow the organization. G. Wright has been in the program since she was 15, and she's 24 now, says Douglas. Both Hill and Aaron Smith, MACM's program coordinator, started at MACM as teenagers. Now, in their early 20s, they are among the first generation of MACM leaders. The ultimate goal, Wright says, is for the program facilitators to always be young people, so her role will eventually be filled by a current MACM team while she either moves up in the organization or on to other things in life. While chess influences the organization's philosophy, it is only part of its programming. While the group holds open chess matches every Thursday, other programs include Make a Culinary Move and Make a Civics Move. MACM is now gearing up for its 10-week summer program, a paid opportunity $17.29 an hour, four hours a day, four days a week, for young people to learn leadership skills while participating in summer camp-like activities. Those involved with MACM and or the summer program are invited to apply for longer-term jobs running current and new MACM programs as the staff works to grow the organization and expand to other states. 90 kids are signed up for the summer program, up from just 30 last year. Right? notes. The MACM Instagram following has doubled since this time a year ago, and the group is doing more fundraising to meet demand. We've had youth reach out. We've had parents reach out. We've had school counselors reach out, Douglas says. Once they come in, they don't want to leave. I don't want to force them into a MACM career if that's not what they want to be. But if an MACM career is something that you see yourself in, then let's start working toward that. If you see yourself opening up your own business, let's start shooting toward that direction as well. Addressing kids and families in search of help, he concludes, let's get you the support. Let's get you the training. Let's get you the tools that you need. Flight for Life says demand for helicopter rescues higher than ever in Colorado by Benjamin Newfeld, After celebrating a 50-year anniversary in 2022, Flight for Life the nation's oldest Civilian Emergency Air Ambulance Program, is staying busier than ever in its home state of Colorado. Population growth and a bustling tourism industry have led to an increase in rescues for the Centura Health Critical Care Transport Program, with flight crews saying that demand for the helicopter service is higher than ever right now. Kathleen Mayer, director of Flight for Life Colorado, tells Westward that the program has seen above-average injury rates over the past two ski seasons, and with summer still ahead, rescuers expect one of the busiest years on record. We have climbers, we have atv we have hikers that fall. All kinds of different things, Mayer says, of the typical rescues that Flight for Life deals with during the summer season. It's the busiest time for the helicopters, she adds. In the winter, Ski resorts have medically trained ski patrollers who are often close enough to hospitals that air transport for injured skiers and snowboarders isn't necessary. When the weather warms up, however, the backcountry is more accessible. We're going to be busy, Mayer asserts. Thanks to large amounts of snowfall this past winter, ski resorts throughout the state are just wrapping up an unusually long season. The Mary Jane side of Winter Park, for example, had its last day on May 29th, while Arapahoe Basin plans to stay open until June 4th. As a result, Mayer says, there were more ski-related injuries and rescues later in the season. The opposite situation actually resulted in a high number of rescues during the 2021-2022 ski season. Winters with less snow result to less terrain being open, which creates more overcrowding on the trails that are open, and more collisions between skiers and injuries. According to the Colorado Office of Economic Development and International Trade, tourism in Colorado reached record levels in 2019. Numbers dipped in 2020 with the pandemic, but began to rebound in 2021. While the months ahead will be very busy for Flight for Life rescuers, saving lives at a fast and efficient rate is nothing new for Colorado air crews. It was not uncommon to do five or six flights in a single 12-hour shift, Mayer says of her time as a flight nurse in the 1980s. The program, which turned 50 in October of 2022, has had to expand over the years to keep up with the demand of tourism and the growing popularity of high-adrenaline sports and activities such as skiing, rock climbing, mountain biking, whitewater rafting, and more. Colorado's population was less than half of what it is now when Flight for Life formed in 1972. Running its first rescues out of Denver, the program has since added bases in four other cities throughout the state, Colorado Springs, Frisco, Pueblo, and most recently, Durango. According to Mayor, Flight for Life was created when concerns around growth and mountain recreation merged in 1970 after Colorado won the bid to host the 1976 Winter Olympics. There was concern that international television exposure would bring a lot of growth to the state, just because it's so beautiful, and that we didn't have the water or infrastructure to support that growth, she says. The other challenge was going to be the geographic spread of the venues. Olympic ski jumping was planned for Steamboat, while some of the Nordic events were set for near Gunnison, and other competitions at the future Beaver Creek, so that that was a huge area to be covered for emergency medical transportation, and the Eisenhower Tunnel wasn't complete yet," Mayer says. So there was concern about how we were going to get patients to Denver quickly with only one bore of that tunnel open, and Loveland Pass being a challenge to diverse if the roads weren't great. The 1976 Olympics never actually made it to Denver. Voters decided not to provide the funding to make it happen. But two other developments motivated the creation of Flight for Life. In the early 70s, there were a number of pilots and soldiers coming back from Vietnam who had seen the value of helicopters moving injured soldiers from the front lines back to the aid stations, like a MASH-type thing, Mayer says. They came back to the States and realized that there was no civilian equivalent for that. Traffic deaths were astronomically high, and people who lived in rural areas suffered much more morbidity and mortality than those lived close to a city with a hospital. The other big motivating factor was the 1970 Wichita State University football team plane crash. In early October 1970, a twin-engine aircraft carrying 40 people associated with the Wichita State University football team crashed into Mount Bethel along Colorado's Continental Divide, killing 31 passengers, reads an excerpt from Colorado Encyclopedia. The plane was headed for Logan, Utah and had opted to go over the mountains, than rather fly over the lower-altitude terrain of southern Wyoming. Co-pilot Skipper had been gaining altitude since departure from Denver, but it was quickly becoming apparent that the plane was too low to proceed over the lofty granite barrier looming ahead, continues the excerpt. At 1.14 p.m., highway workers saw the plane dip and strike the side of Mount Bethel, exploding twice on the slope. There were only nine survivors. Analysis afterward revealed that if there had been a faster way to get in and get injured people out by helicopter, there might have been more, Mayer says. Flight for Life began at the old St. Anthony Hospital with a single Alouette III helicopter, which was chosen for its ability to perform well at high altitude, notes Mayer. It was the first civilian service of its kind in not just Colorado, but the United States, There were no guidelines or operating protocols or even guidelines for what to wear or what to carry, she says. They made it up as they went along and got it to work. Over the years, the program continued to add additional helicopters, planes, trucks, and bases. Flight for Life's evolution was driven by the same forces that led to the creation of the program in the first place, population growth and the proliferation of outdoor recreation. That growth was all organic, Mayer recalls. We were always invited to open a new base wherever we went. We didn't just take a helicopter somewhere and tell the local hospital and EMS that they had to use it. Despite its overall success, Flight for Life has had one issue of conflict with its original on-the-ground colleagues in Denver, says current flight nurse Dan Gormley. We will not land in the metro area, he says. The main reason is that it's simply faster for an ambulance to pick up and carry a patient to a hospital when the patient is already in a city. Another deciding factor dates back to the 1970s, Gormley says. There was a time when Denver Health, which was then Denver General, and St. Anthony's Hospital were still primary competitors, he explains, and so there was a lot of rivalry there. Gormley claims a gentleman's agreement was eventually made, and Flight for Life vowed to stay out of Denver for good. When Mayer first started as a flight nurse, the program was about 70% scene work, cases that involve patients at the scene of their injury, such as on highways, at ski resorts, or in the mountains. The other 30% involved interfacility transfer, transporting already hospitalized patients to other hospitals for needed medical procedures not available at the original location. That's basically reversed now, Mayer says, and it's because there are more hospitals out there and there's a significantly expanded scope of care for EMS. So we're not needed as much for scene work. Paramedics can do a great deal more than they could 20 or 30 years ago. Still, the scene work that Flight for Life continues to do today is just as important to the rescuers. We literally landed on top of the flat irons, Brown says of a middle-of-the-night mission during his first year as a Flight for Life paramedic. The pilot had to kind of keep trying until he could figure out exactly the way to land. The pilot managed to find a little landing area on a saddle near the top of South Boulder Peak, where they could pick up a hiker after a search and rescue team carried him up from farther down the mountain. Flight for Life crews are now coming to the end of their shoulder season, a slow time of year between ski season and when summer recreation picks up, according to Gormley. With temperatures starting to go up in the mountains, and Colorado Parks and Wildlife beginning to issue notices urging the public to use caution outdoors, expect to see more and more choppers flying overhead in the coming weeks. Coors Field street vendors say bad weather, Rockies sucking has hurt business, by Katie Cheshire. For 24 years, Patricia Bravo has been slinging peanuts, chips, sunflower seeds, bottled drinks and other snacks on the streets outside Coors Field before Colorado Rocky games. Bravo remembers how busy the area outside the park was when the MLB team was last in the playoffs in 2018. She and other vendors would post up by the dozen in the cut shadow of Coors Field at 20th and Blake Streets to dish out cheaper ballpark eats to fans with nearly 40 different peanut peddlers licensed to sell before the pandemic, according to the Department of Excise and License's records. Now, Bravo is one of just eight. People lost interest and stopped trying to get their license, she says, speaking in Spanish with her son, helping translate. The city has seen a 79% drop in vendors since before the pandemic. There were 39 licensed food sellers in January of 2020, Those in the industry say bad weather and an uninspiring 2023 Rockies team are to blame for the drop this year. If it's hot, it's fine, says vendor Jesus Rodriguez, who's been selling snacks before Rockies games for more than two decades. If it's cold, no business. Amelia Vasquez, another longtime street seller whose son translated for her, tells Westward, the Rockies aren't doing well, so now many people aren't attending the games. They lose. Everybody loses. With a record of 22-29, and the Rockies are currently sitting in last place in the National League West Division and have the 6th worst winning percentage in Major League Baseball. Bud Black's squad has managed to go 13-9 and in May so far, but this month has also been the 5th wettest on record, which vendors think has led fans to stay away. Before this season, the Rockies finished in the top 10 for average attendance in Major League Baseball six years in a row. For 2023, attendance has been trending much lower, with the team registering its first showing of fewer than 19,000 fans since 2013 on April 19th. According to Baseball Reference, This season's attendance per game is currently 25,970, compared to last season's 32,067. Getting a vendor's license isn't an onerous process. Licensees must share their criminal history, have a valid state or federal ID, provide a character reference, and show that their name is what they say their name is. The City of Denver recently reworked the rules to allow undocumented people to get food peddler licenses, too. From there, there's a city inspection, and then they're all set. The application fee is $25, and the license fee is $50. Peddlers can't have tables or wagons unless they apply for a disabled peddler exemption. All goods and or products must be carried on an individual peddler's person and may not be carried, displayed, or stored in or on any carts, dollies, tables, wagons, coolers, or similar devices the city's guidelines specify. There is one quirk. Peddlers can't stay in one place while selling. They must move about. The area in which they can roam has shrunk in recent years, too, because the Rockies obtained a public sidewalk occupancy permit to shut down the sidewalk outside the ballpark. That permit requires people to dismount bikes, scooters, and skateboards between 20th and 22nd streets along Blake Street and prevents vendors from selling directly in front of the stadium. Vasquez says she doesn't sell nearly as much from her new spot at the corner of 22nd and Blake as she did in front of the stadium entrances on Blake. While the Rockies did not respond to requests for comment, the Denver Department of Transportation and Infrastructure shared the Rockies 2023 public sidewalk occupancy permit with Westward. The intended purpose is to assist with the safety of the general public and to assist with DPHE Health and Safety Guidelines and DPD Rockies Security, Safety, and Crowd Control for ticketed spectators, the permit application says. The team will pay just $1,393.70 to shut down the street and sidewalk in front of the stadium in 2023, thanks to a special event reduction that saves the franchise over $25,000. The usual rate is $344 per day, but the Rockies paid just 5% of that amount to close the sidewalk for four hours before first pitch until two hours after last pitch. Although the team is getting a reduced rate, the peddlers aren't and they're having a tough time making a profit. Bravo, for instance, has had to raise her prices as have other vendors. Daniel Moffat, who has been in the peddling game for about seven years, says hikes in the cost of goods makes the gig even tougher. Rodriguez notes that the cost of parking close to Coors Field so that he can keep drinks cold in the car and then bring them out to customers has also hurt his profit margin. Five years ago, he says he'd be on the streets with 10 or 20 other vendors each game. Now he looks around and barely sees anyone. But the street vendors aren't throwing in the towel just yet. They're hoping nicer weather and school being out for the summer will be a home run for their industry. The beginning of this season, I'm not making enough to make it worth it, Moffitt says, but it will get up. Koya Nyanji brings African designers to Denver with fashion show at Real Works by Castle Wazerman. Do you know about African fashion? When Kenyan-born stylist and fashion blogger Koya Nyanji moved to Denver, she found that most people weren't aware of the vibrant, creative fashion sh- scene in Africa. There's so much good stuff happening there, she says, and no one knows about it. Nyanji lived in London, Dubai, and Bangalore before coming to Denver in 2018. After writing a series of articles called A Hundred Days of Denver Fashion on her website, Let Me Show You Different, and scrolling through Instagram looking at local fashion scene makers, she saw an opportunity to bring awareness to what was missing. She took it upon herself to become what she calls a cultural ambassador and bring African culture and fashion to Denver, starting with a Shop and Sip event in 2021 with Kenyan luxury jewelry designer Adele dehak Neonji says her mission is to open doors for African designers by being their representative and spreading the word to boutiques and trade shows. People would say, I want to help Africa. I'm going to donate money to build a dam. And I'm like, you could buy a dress from an African designer, Neonji says. We don't need more dams, okay? We need to create sustainable jobs and to expand the market. When a designer gets an order, they can increase the number of people they can hire. And that makes an economic impact. Her biggest project yet is a fashion show on Saturday, June 3rd, showcasing five African designers at RealWorks. The idea started small in my head, and it just got bigger, she laughs. Nyanji says she planned to do another shop and sip, but it turned into a full-fledged runway show when she found that every African designer she contacted was eager to participate and even fly to Denver to show. We have all these designers willing to deal with visa issues and fly 28 hours to show us their fashion and for us to celebrate African culture, she says. Show attendees can expect to see a mix of traditional textiles mixed with modern design and examples of sustainability that meet today's demand for brands to be environmentally responsible. The designers are inherently sustainable because of the lack of resources in Africa, Nianji notes. She also wants these designers to take back their story, which has been borrowed, copied, and appropriated by more prominent names and brands, which hurts the culture and economy of where it comes from. African stories have often been told through a European or somebody else's lens. I want to break down the stereotypes and show the new age of what these amazing designers are doing, she explains. This show is not African-inspired. It's African-led. If you ever see Nyanji around town, you can't miss her stylish, colorful outfits. She says fashion is like the air she breathes. I honestly feel every single day is a celebration, she says. Don't wait to give yourself permission to dress up only on certain days. I dress up every single day. That permission is what she teaches in her work as a stylist. To me, it's like therapy, she says. When you come to me to help you with your style, You're giving yourself permission to lose any inhibitions you may have. Nyanji works to reflect her client's personalities and style and then puts the cherries on top with layers that add interest to a look. She adds that it's important for people to know they don't have to stick with one particular look to have a certain style. As individuals, I don't think we're just one thing. I teach people to look within, not copy and paste something they saw, she explains. Do what you want, what you like. Then you are honoring the full you that is inside you. Neonji hopes that by bringing African designers to Denver, people will consider buying from them. In an age of political correctness and cultural appropriation call-outs, she often gets asked, can I wear it? She finds this surprising. Yes, you can wear it and should flaunt it. They're making it for you to wear it, she says. For Neonji, the cultural appropriation issue is centered on who you bought it from. I get upset when I see anybody using African designs and monetizing it, like when a big brand makes copies and they take the money. The wrong people are telling the story, and the wrong people are making money from it, she explains. We have to think about who we're supporting and who is telling the story. The African Designer Fashion Show 5 to 10 p.m., Saturday, June 3rd, Real Works, 1399 35th Street. Find tickets 35 to $95 at letmeshowyoudifferent.com. Set Sale for Adam's Mystery Playhouse and Murder on Pirate Island by Tony Tresca. Since 2006, the eccentric mansion at 2406 Federal Boulevard has housed the Adam's Mystery Playhouse. After years as a nomadic group operating out of rented spaces, co-owners Carlos and Marnie Wills Quayar bought the historic structure to house the renowned Death for Dinner murder mystery dinner theater performances. What we do is a little bit different, says Nick Guida, a longtime actor, director, and writer for the company. The process here is not normally how you would think of theater. Normally there's an audition, your cast rehearses for God knows how long, And then there's a little run of the show. And unless theater has changed substantially since I was working in it 30 years ago, you don't make any money. It's kind of the opposite here. When actors do a show with us, they're actually going to make money that night from doing the show. This is not a nonprofit organization. We don't work on grants or government funding. We are a money-making business. The company has thrived in its location for the past 17 years by producing public performances several days a week, such as the upcoming Murder on Pirate Island, as well as private performances for events like corporate gatherings and holiday parties, and through its touring company, which performs shows from the group's repertoire across the nation. Weekly, I'd estimate that we see at least 400 to 600 people pass through the building, Marnie says. Through its years of mystery making, the theater has been able to hone its craft and perfect the storytelling structure that draws audiences in. We start with serving food and walking around the audience to establish our characters, Marnie says. Carlos and I greet the crowd and make announcements before the opening scene happens. After the death, we take a break and return with some bits of entertainment as well as the entrance of an investigator who tries to piece the whole story together. During the dessert break, we split the tables up into teams and pick who the murderer is before we come together to vote and reveal the killer in the final scene. The Wills Quayars have been perfecting this formula since Death for Dinner began touring shows for businesses, churches, schools, and even abroad at the Department of Defense's American military shows in 1990. Their private performances were so successful, the company began performing publicly in 1992. In order to keep up with their ever-expanding audience's demand for new material, Guida and Marne, who trade off writing responsibilities, use the company's signature structure to develop new mysteries in unique time periods with eccentric characters. "When I first joined, we weren't doing nearly as many public performances," Guida says. "Before we were just doing one-off shows, and there was no regularity to it. People had more opportunities to see one of our shows once we bought this location and began doing weekly public performances. We've been creating new shows nonstop since we moved into this location because of repeat customers. And after more than 30 years of creating mysteries, the writers agree that the ending is what distinguishes a good mystery from a great one. One of Guida's favorite parts of the evening is the audience voting on who they think the murderer is before the grand reveal. For the most part, and I don't know if it's from people not paying attention or trying to be funny, but we get a range of responses, says Guida. I guess it's like that whole eyewitness thing you hear about in true crime, where witness testimony is not that reliable because you could have five people who see the same crime and they all have seen a slightly different version of it. And, of course, people are here to have fun and might be drinking, so that might affect their votes, too. But I always love hearing the different details that the audience picks up. That's only possible because we take the mysteries themselves very seriously. Up next is Murder on Pirate Island, which invites audiences to set sail on the high seas with a gang of pirates who are searching for the lost treasure of La Boos. This show is about Calico Jack Tremaine, who says he's solved the cryptogram that leads to the treasure, but is murdered," says Guida, who wrote the show's script. The crime the audience is trying to solve is which of the crew—Shanghai Ned Briscoe, Frankie Five Angels, Taffy Leinenkugel, or Sadie the washerwoman— killed him to get the treasure. I don't want to give too much away, but they each have their motives. Audience members are encouraged to wear pirate-themed apparel to the show, as they will be invited to participate in a costume parade and get in on the action. Adam Mystery Playhouse produced its first pirate-themed show 14 years ago, using the same story as its current production, but a different title. When we decided to write another pirate show a few years ago, we called it The Curse of Pirate Island, Guida says. The Curse of Pirate Island told the same story we're telling now, but we learned then that if a show's title doesn't include the word murder, it doesn't sell. That's why, when we did it this time, we changed the title to Murder on Pirate Island. Although the characters in the show are made up, the location and the treasure the pirates are looking for are real. Pirate islands were real places where pirates would all go and hang out, Guida explains, And while the characters aren't necessarily based on a single pirate, they are based on a variety of pilot personalities. Murder on Pirate Island, Friday, June 2nd through Saturday, August 5th, Adams Mystery Playhouse, 2406 Federal Boulevard. Find tickets, times, and more information at adamsmysteryplayhouse.com. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program,